Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet Rebecca McClanahan, author of 11 books, including her most recent release, In the Key of New York City, a memoir and essays. Recipient of numerous writing awards, Rebecca shares what life was like, what she saw, felt, heard, tasted, and experienced while living in New York City from 1998 through 2009. She covers everything from the sounds and wonders of the setting to events that changed the world and her own life. Abigail Thomas, New York Times bestselling author, comments on Rebecca McClanahan's powers of observation, saying, Rebecca McClanahan has such an intensely curious, observant, and highly intelligent mind that her take on anything would be interesting. And of the book, she says, particularly absorbing. We start the show with Rebecca reading from the essay, Signs and Wonders where we hear the sounds of New York City artillery going off early in the morning. Artillery sounds wake me, car alarms screeching, beeping, you know the drill, and a jackhammer breaking open the sidewalk outside our window. No, not our window, I remind myself. The window of the apartment we've been subletting this past year, and the lease is almost up. Another year? My husband is leaving it up to me. Donald could live anywhere. He's that kind of guy. Easy, adaptable, like the ducks in the park. Things just roll right off his back. When we first moved to New York, we couldn't believe how cheap the flowers were. What a city, we said. We can buy flowers every week, fill the apartment with them, the bathtub. What a city. Then we went to the grocery store, and when I saw the prices, I started to cry. How can we possibly afford? We'll have to give up. Oh, my God, I shrieked. What will we eat? We'll just have to eat flowers, Donald said. Last week, I would have signed a hundred-year lease. I was just coming off one of my New York highs, the kind that hits you when you least expect it, and suddenly it's like first love again, first lust, and you wonder how you could possibly live anywhere else. Then a steam pipe bursts. The couple in the apartment above you straps their steel-heeled boots back on. You step in a puddle of urine on the subway platform, and some guy with three rings in his nose calls you bitch and spits on you because... Who knows, you look like a second-grade teacher or some president's wife or his mother, and you think, live another year in this jackhammering, siren-screaming, piss-puddling city in someone else's apartment in someone else's bed with someone else's plates, forks, spoons? Maybe it's the wrong day to decide. Maybe I need some air. Maybe I need a sign. So I go where I always go when I need a sign to Central Park, and oh, look, a day so beautiful, you'd gladly pay if the universe were charging. The leaves on the ginkgos are falling, gold coins upon gold coins, and there in the pond are my ducks. How I admire them. Look, one is passing up breadcrumbs to catch a blossom. He's eating flowers. Along the promenade are the inline skaters in their t-shirts, Kickamus, Maximus, Asimus. Are you talking to me? 
fun-loving criminal. One guy is skating backward, a small compact man so graceful he doesn't need skates. His hip joints are on ball bearings rolling in one smooth movement. But I know it's harder than it looks. Isn't everything? If you peek beneath the surface of the water, you can see the duck's tiny paddle wheel feet working, churning. It breaks your heart. Little New York ducks have to keep moving all the time. Hey, listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, we will send you uh, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. And now, here's a little bit more about the author, followed by our conversation, more readings, and our writing life discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Rebecca McClanahan's 11th book in the Key of New York City, a memoir and essays, is published by Red Hen Press. Her work has appeared in Best American Essays, Best American Poetry, Georgia Review, Gettysburg Review, Boulevard, Brevity, The Sun, River Teeth, and in anthologies published by Simon & Schuster, Beacon, Norton, and Bedford St. Martin, among others. Recipient of two Pushcart Prizes, the Glasgow Award in Nonfiction, the Wood Prize from Poetry Magazine, twice, the Carter Prize for the Essay, and the North Carolina Governor's Award for Excellence in Education, Rebecca teaches in MFA programs of Rainier Writing Workshop and Queen's University and in the Kenyon Review Writers Workshop. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, that's, uh, so congratulations on the release of the new book. Thank you. It's been a long time coming, <laughs> a long time living, and a long time writing. Yeah, so. well, well, and I, and I know, and you had to delay this release. Uh, it was supposed to release in May, but now you moved the release to early September because of the COVID-19, um, I assume because of what was going on in New York City at that time. Yes, it, it, was, it was an emotional and moral choice. And I was so happy when my editor said, let's wait, let's wait till September. I'd like to talk just a minute about you, where you came from, where you're interested in words developed, and then how you happened to go live in New York City for 11 years. So I was a Marine brat, uh, a large family, and we moved a lot. Um, my dad was a career Marine pilot. I served in World War II in Vietnam and um, Korea. and um, But our family moved around a lot. <laughs> and um, I only ended up in the Carolinas for uh, graduate school. And um, so, and then later uh, met my husband-to-be, Donald, and and lived in Charlotte. But yes, I lived in Virginia, Texas, uh, California, uh, Florida, once even in North Carolina when I was a baby at the base. Um, But um, but yeah, uh, so I used to get very um, disturbed (laughs) when people would ask me at a new school when I'd moved there, where are you from? Where are you from? And I always, I, I would, I came home one day crying to my mother and I said, mom, I don't know. I don't know what to say. And she said, you just tell those kids you came from your mom and dad. <laughs> so, that's, that's, that's good. That's where, that's where we all start along with five other children, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, Cause uh, you were one of, you were one of six. Yeah. Uh, uh, your interest in words came early. You said, uh, thanks in part to someone you call your great aunt Bessie, uh, um, who you said was an avid reader and who shared, you know, you, you shared a room with for several years. Tell us about Great Aunt Bessie <laughs> and how she, you know, got you interested in words. Well, she was quite a character, as they say. 
uh, 70 years older than me. Um, and um, in fact, my latest book before this one was called The Tribal Knot. It's a, a, an ancestral memoir. And she's the center of that because she lived almost 100 years. And um, so it was like living uh, next to a history book. Uh, and I did share a, a bed with her as well as a, a room. Uh, we stacked up like cordwood, as my dad always said. And um, so, yes, it was quite an adventure. And she was a reader like me. And um, she taught me to, she read everything, everything that she could get her hands on. And we read to each other at night. Um, yeah. So, yeah, she was a great, great influence because my mother with so many children and my dad overseas, she didn't have a lot of time, you know, to read to us. So mm -hmm. I lucked out with Aunt Bessie. Yes. Well, they say that, you know, good writers have to be good readers, too. And you started early, you said, reading crime thrillers, The Hardy Boys, even you said seed catalogs and the backs of cereal boxes. <laughs> Whatever I could. I loved words and I Whatever. made up my own. <laughs> and you made up your own in the bathtub too, right? <laughs> I did. I sang. You know, when you got a big family, it's the yeah. only time you can get privacy. So okay. I would often, yes, I'd go in the bathroom, uh, close the door and make up um, songs and stories and um, yeah. And singing. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, I was intrigued by the fact that the first, uh, contest you won where you won $15 as, as, a young, <laughs> as a youngster was sponsored by the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Oh, good God. Yes. <laughs> uh, not a member, just so yeah. you know. Okay. But hey, you got the 15 bucks, right? <laughs> I did. I was 14, so I had yeah. not yet tasted alcohol. So yeah. uh, I thought I was some sort of expert. <laughs> well, I wonder, you know, you do have great powers of observation. I noticed that when I read the book, um, just everything comes to life in, in your words. And I was just wondering where that came from. And I was looking at your bio and saw that you've done about everything you could do. <laughs> church, church organist, uh, proofreader, soloist uh, at weddings and funerals, nanny, school teacher, secretary, summer stock actor, Avon lady. Avon oh. lady? Come on. Really? What? You're desperate. I was desperate. I had to pay my tuition. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's talk moving to New York. Uh, you, hey. you you were living in, uh, where were you living at the in time? Charlotte. You, you in were Charlotte. living in Charlotte. Yeah. And so you decided to move, and uh, you, you talk a little bit about this in the book, but I just thought quickly, uh, why do you pull up roots and move to the big city? Yes, well, it was a, a midlife adventure. It's something my husband and I had always wanted to do. His grandparents were um, were from New York City. They lived there. He had a lot of memories of, of going there. Um, his father was in the Forest Service, but they went back a lot to, um, to New York. And we were both uh, very interested in theater and the arts. Um, my husband was a professional puppeteer. He started Gray Seal Puppets here. And I was a writer. And um, we so we went to New York every chance we got. And we said, someday we really want to live here. And so um, just on, on Donald's 50th birthday, we made the decision. And um, within a couple of weeks, we put our, our house for sale. And um, everyone thought we were totally crazy. And we uh, sold it quickly. We gave away our cat and um, and said goodbye to all our friends and neighbors who continued to think we were crazy. And uh, we decided we had enough savings uh, from the sale of the house and all to last almost two years uh, if we didn't find work. Um, and uh, we ended up staying 11 years. Uh, yeah. You know, you know the, this phrase is, is overused a lot, culture shock. I mean, you were going for the culture. You wanted to be there, but... Then again, there was a sort of shock to the senses from where you lived before to where you lived when you got there. Can you compare and contrast just a few things that just stuck out at you right away oh. when you got there? <laughs> well, one of the reasons that we moved when we did, too, is that at that time we were um, we were living downtown in Fourth Ward. Okay. Um, but it, it did not have the street activity that we love. At that time, we had the Overstreet Mall. It was like there just wasn't street activity. And, and one night, there was a, a, a taxi who was kind of trailing us. And I, I turned around. And I said, you know, this is backwards. <laughs> We're supposed to be flagging the cab. So I, it wasn't that we hadn't lived within a city, 
but um, but just the vibrancy of the street uh, continued for even eleven years. I loved the different faces, the the warm this broth of languages. Every uh, just that wonderful energy of the street, even when it drove me crazy. But um, I found it very difficult to find a community to connect with neighbors. And one of the early pieces in, in the book talks about that. It's called The Music in the Walls. Yeah. And um, it's almost like I was practically putting a stethoscope up to the, to the walls so that I could get a sense of who my neighbors were. Um, and because all my friends that li- already lived in New York, native uh, New Yorkers, I had a lot of of writer friends there before I moved, um, they, uh, they warned me, you, you never, uh, never knock, never, uh, don't intrude on anyone's space because that door is all that keeps you from the chaos outside. <laughs> well, I wanted the chaos to come in cause I was so lonely. Uh, so I, I tried anyway. I was, and, and that's a great setup for what you're just about mm-hmm. to read here in just a second. But I, I was taken also, uh, Rebecca, by that because um, it just seems, I don't know, we talk about this thing called Southern hospitality or Southernness or whatever. It just seems natural to say hello, to to talk to your neighbors, to maybe take something to them when they move in, to, to invite them to a street party or whatever. And so the idea that you would be in a building and no one else is answering the door, if they do, they look at you like you're crazy. Uh, it's that's a foreign concept, right? Uh, and one that's you know difficult, to, I think, for 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 a lot of people to understand. So I kind of imagined. Well, I imagined every the neighbors. I had never met any of them, but by the sounds that they made, the music they played, the you know how often they flushed the toilet above me, if the waterbed sloshed at a certain times, I got certain imaginary uh, ideas of of who they might be. So. Um, but I had in, in this section that I'm going to read here is I had finally made face to face contact with the opera singer next door. And apparently I did a terrible thing by letting him know that I loved his music. He thought he was um, he was being quiet and, and he was just, oh, no, oh, no. And I said, no, I love it. It's, I love it. But so this is the section after that when he's just walked away from me. Thus continues my education in New York apartment dwelling. Never let your neighbors know that you can hear them through the walls. Apparently, this qualifies as invasion of privacy. But what about cookies? Chocolate chip? Who could resist? I decide on the traditional toll house, doubling the recipe for good luck. I could feed the whole fifth floor. After arranging several cookies on a plate, I step out into the warm, cookie-scented hallway. The singer isn't home yet, so I knock on 5D, the apartment that sometimes smells like baking bread. I knock, wait, hear footsteps approaching, stopping. Surely they can see me through the peephole. I knock again, wait, hear footsteps retreating. Move on to 5F. There's a television in the background, some kind of shoot 'em up Knock, knock, footsteps approaching, stopping, a lock clicking. Another lock, another. The door opens a few inches, the security chain still latched. What is it? A gruff voice growls. What's the problem? No problem, just cookies. My voice is a squeak. From your neighbor in 5A. Thanks, but no thanks. Door closes. The cookies are cooling by the minute. I think of the painter in 4A, but I don't want to disturb him if he's working. And the couple in 6A? I haven't heard their toilet flushing for days now. They must be traveling. If only it were meter reading day. I know the con ed guy would take a handful. I stand in the hallway a long time, looking down at the cookies on the white plate, one of the plates the landlords left for us. Jesus, I don't even have my own plates. They're in North Carolina, too, along with my family, our friends, our house. No, not our house. It belongs to someone else now, our cat, too. How could we have given up our cat? The cookies are cooling. My tears are coming hard. This is it. This is my life. And I am so lonely. Now, Rebecca, you've, uh, in these first couple of essays, the one you read at the outset of the show, 
where you talked about the uh, sort of pandemonium, the hammering, the siren screaming, uh, and asked yourself uh, <laughs> whether you should stay or go. And maybe this wasn't right there to decide. And then you're trying to make connections with others uh, in the third essay here. And, you know, the person just says, thanks, but no thanks. And uh, you don't even have another person to take it to. They're cooling in your hand and you're, you're really lonely. Um, I'm wondering how long it took for you to sort of understand that there was a trade-off there, you know, that you weren't going to get some of the things you wanted to be able to receive the other things that you got from living in New York city. Right. Right. Um, Oh gosh. You know, I do think that, um, that several things, um, well, little by little, of course, connecting with people. Uh, when I began teaching, I had my students, and that formed um, some bonds. And and even the Con Ed guy, he became my bud, really. I looked forward to him. He, he liked to sing as well. Um, I, I think it came, but I think it was solidified, actually, by 9-11. Um, and then, then after that, you know, with my cancer diagnosis and surgery, and being so well taken care of um, by strangers at, at the hospital. And um, so, you know, little by little, of course, we made we made personal connections, Donald through his work with the job he got. And um, so those things came more naturally, but um, there is a lot of trade-off. That's an interesting way that you put it. And I think I actually have a couple sections um, in, in the book about that and what I grew to love about it. Um, but um, I think it is really a love song in many ways to New York. Um, and like all love affairs, you know, you're gonna have arguments, you're going to walk away sometimes, say, oh, that's enough out of me. But then you, if you really love someone or a place, uh, you will always, I think, come back and reconnect. Um, is that where the is that where the title comes from in the key? Of yes, New York in the key of New York. So there's music throughout. It opens with the music of the, you know, jackhammer, and then um, it ends with, you know, uh, well, there's music threaded throughout the entire book. A lot of the 9/11 are t- attached to music. I was trained as a musician, and the last page uh, ends uh, on music as well. So yes, in the key, of course. It, apartment key away into the city, but mostly in the key of it's, it's about the music of the city and, and the music of our hearts, you know, as we begin to, to learn a new place, um, to grieve and to find different ways to connect. Well, you know, you did point out that your brother warned you because, uh, (laughs) He said, uh, you know, with an intake of breath in the same essay, you know, it won't be like Seinfeld. (laughs) And you said, well, wait a minute. I live in apartment 5A. That's where Seinfeld Seinfeld lived, right? He did. He did. Uh, And and so, uh, okay, well, that's great. Let's let's do it. You you, you actually just talked about 9-11, which is a good, uh, you you write about that in the book. And uh, it wasn't long after you'd been living there that you experienced this. So, uh, you've got to read here. It's um, it's from the uh, it's from the essay, which is one of the longer essays in the book. It's uh, and we shall be changed, uh, September seventh through eleventh, two thousand one. And you know you're reading a part here, but there's there are a lot of things that happen before you get to this reading. Yeah. Just set set this reading up a little bit before, um, and then and if you would after you set it up, we'll have you read that part. Okay. You know there. There are actually three um, essays. One's only a half a page long. That's between the two nine eleven essays. But um, this first one, I, I don't write directly about that day so much. It, I, I write this essay, um, and we shall be changed. Of course, that's another musical from Handel's Messiah. It's the baritone solo. Um, that my opera singer neighbor was singing through the walls uh, uh, for months before this, uh, getting ready for the oratorio. But um, a couple of strange things happened. I was already writing this essay um, way before, not way before, but a couple days before 9-11 occurred. 
um, because a couple of things had happened. On, on September 7th, uh, again, we were on the fifth floor, uh, something dropped through our chimney. Uh, and um, we chased it around the cat. By then we got our new cat, yay, Layla. She's a little uh, neurotic cat, but uh, we loved her. And uh, we had a skirmish and had discovered that somehow through our chimney, we had a little fireplace, uh, uh, a, a squirrel had, had dropped through into our lives. Um, and um, anyway, we, we spent uh, qu quite some time <laughs> corralling him into the cat carrier and then putting him out on the little Juliet balcony. Um, and, um, and he stayed there uh, until the morning of the, uh, of the attacks. Uh, and so I was already thinking about that and then we, and, and writing about it, the strangeness of something just falling into your, into your world. And then that next night, that same night, we went to see the Sebastio Salgado exhibit of photographs of, uh, migrants in like 40 countries that he had documented, uh, the, the trail of migrants and how. Uh, they land in these in these spaces. So I was already starting an essay because those two things had collided in my head, and then um, of course the attacks happened. So this the essay actually ends with when I was beginning to hear the sirens that morning. But here's um, the the read is from something that I heard um, the day before, and uh, again was already part of, of the essay I was writing uh, when this happened. Um, again, I'm, I'm in my, our apartment on the fifth floor. Now a horn is blaring down the street and other horns are joining in. What is it this time? I go to the window to investigate. A fancy sedan is stopped in the middle of the street, sideways, blocking the yellow cab behind it. A tall, well-dressed woman gets out of the sedan and marches over to the cab. She's fuming, screaming at the cab driver that she's just trying to park her car, but he won't give her an inch, and how is she supposed to back into the space with him right behind her like that, blasting his horn? The cab driver, who looks Middle Eastern, jumps out of the cab and stands nose to nose with the woman, shouting something I can't make out. I'm thinking it might come to physical blows. Then... Go back where you came from, she screams. And someone on the sidewalk below my window, I can't see who it is, applauds. Go back where you came from? I think, what would that mean for New York? I imagine the streets emptying, like they do when you show a film in reverse. Time sucking us backwards. The sky filling with bodies. All of us hurtling back to where we came from the cab driver back to Saudi Arabia or Pakistan, the super and his wife and children linked in a chain of hands, flying out of the basement apartment and into the air above the Atlantic, heading toward Montenegro, the ashes of my husband's grandparents reconstructing into bones, skin, cells, then swirling back to Chicago, Canada, Switzerland, and finally into a small village outside St. Petersburg, all of us disappearing, even me, sucked through the streets of New York and down to North Carolina, then South Carolina, to Maryland, California, then back into Virginia, Texas, Illinois, finally landing in Indiana in the nursery of a small hospital in Tippecanoe County, my thumb in my mouth, and still the film keeps running backwards, a hundred years, another hundred years, another. Where are they now? The streets of New York, the towns of the past, the lands where things disappear? No more. All that's left is forest, river, sky, and a few hundred gray squirrels high in the trees, building their lopsided nests. Yeah, Rebecca, this, uh, essentially, I ask authors to pick readings, and then I, I pick readings, too, and then we compare notes, and uh, we both picked this one, uh, yeah. which, is, which is good. Uh, I really was drawn to this because it got me to thinking, what is an American anyway? I mean, you know, if you, and I, you just see this film, unwinding in reverse sometimes like they do in these in these shows where they they rewind everything to go back to to an earlier time and everything's going in fast motion it could just be like people are being sucked out of the 
off the streets, out of the buildings. They're going back, 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 you know, and then there's no one left because what is an American, right? Right. You know, we come from so many different places. So when we say go home, um, there might be nobody left in those streets. So anyway, I thought it was interesting that you ended with squirrels there and you also end the essay with squirrels. You started with squirrels writing about something that wasn't controversial except for you and Donald because you had a squirrel <laughs> in, in your house and you ended um, against that stark sort of landscape uh, a day or two earlier with a squirrel, you finally were able to let it loose and it scampers up a tree against the blue sky and such an odd combination there, right? Of yes. What you've just been through. Okay. So listeners, when we come back, uh, we're going to, we're going to have another uh, a reading uh, about uh, early morning on a downtown train. We're going to do the writing life segment. Uh, we've got a final read that involves a ginkgo song. And uh, so please stay with us. Hey listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community, and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast. Uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I've really enjoyed participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and... Uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond. Uh, and all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, I'm back uh, with M Rebecca McClanahan, and we're talking about uh, her new book, In the Key of New York City. It's a memoir in essays. Uh, we've got a read now. It's called Early Morning Downtown One Train. And Rebecca, just talk a minute about riding the subway. It, we don't have many, but we don't <laughs> we don't have anything underground here in Charlotte. <laughs> uh, and uh, I know having traveled, uh, we've ridden it some, and you, you rode it a lot probably while you're in New York. But uh, talk about riding the subway in New York, and then maybe do a little setup for this read, if you would. Well. Um... It's, it's necessary. I mean, uh, unless you're extremely wealthy, I mean, um, you know, it, to take cabs, uh, for, first of all, it's not very efficient. <laughs> and uh, though I walked a lot, we walked, um, always Donald would walk to work and I would walk um, wherever I could. But mostly, you, you know, if you want to get anywhere, <laughs> you do take the subway. 
and it can be maddening and, and hot and terrible, but it's also um, a wonderful way to, um, to watch faces, um, to learn. It's very democratic in some ways, uh, space. So um, I think though many days I hated it and cursed it, other days I was so grateful for it. And um, like you said, another trade-off, right? Um, and, but you, you do see things that sometimes break your heart and you see some, also some very beautiful things, um, that happen between people, um, kindnesses, even, um, people giving their seat up to someone else, um, people being respectful of their distance. Um, and so, um, I was, I, I'm a watcher, <laughs> um, and I, so I learned a lot, and this was one of the most um, memorable of all of the, the encounters that I had on the subway. Oh, by the way, there's a lot of good musicians, too, <laughs> and magicians, and people yeah. trying to, to make a buck, and some of them are quite amazing. So, yeah, and you're writing, about, you're writing about a family here in this Yes, one. this yeah. is a, a family that I saw. Early morning, downtown one train. In this car, packed with closed faces, this tube of light tunneling through darkness, two sleeping boys, so close I could touch them without reaching, their smooth brown faces, planed cheekbones, like Peruvian steps leading from or to some beautiful ruin, boys so alike they must be brothers, and the small worried man they sprawl against, too young to seem so old, Father, how far have they come? How far to go? They sleep as only loved children sleep, holy, no need to tighten or clutch to fold themselves in. Their heads are thrown back, mouths open, no, agape, which looks like the word agape, the highest form of love some minister told me long ago as if love is a cupboard of lower and higher shelves. And why bother reaching if you have hands like the hands of this young father, cracked and blistered, stamped with the pattern of shovel or pick? For someone must do our digging and rise in the dark to dress the children carefully as these boys are dressed and pack their knapsacks and ease out of the seat without waking the opened mouth younger one nor the older whose head now rests fully on the emptied seat. But my God, I am thinking as the train breaks squeal and the father moves quickly to face the door. He is leaving these children. A father is leaving his children. The train slows at 50th and he presses his body against the door, lifting his arms above his head. A signal? Surrender? As the door slides open, and a woman steps in, small and dark like the father, her body lost in a white uniform. She touches his sleeve. Something passes between their eyes. Not sadness exactly, but ragged exhaustion, frayed edges meeting, his night, her day, her night, his day, goodbye, hello. She slides onto the seat, lifting one son's head to her lap. His mouth is still open, his body limp. She smooths his collar. Her small hands move to his lips, closing them gently, the way one closes the mouth of the recently dead. But the boy is not dead, just sleeping an arm thrown over his brother, his mother near. So, Rebecca, this feeds well into the writing life discussion because I think uh, Abigail in the opening there talked about your powers of observation, and you're seeing a lot happen and unfold here on the subway. You're not, uh, you're not reading the newspaper. You're not uh, stuck in your phone. You're not trying to stay away from you. You're actually absorbed in this, story that's unfolding and you're taken aback when you think the father's leaving the children. And then when that exchange happens, it tells you a whole lot about mm. what's going on. Um, I guess my question is from, from the standpoint of, you know, the writing life, uh, 
Where does that come from? Where does that, those, those powers of observation, do you have to train yourself? Did it come naturally? Um, talk about that. Yes. I, well, again, I, I think, I think part of being a military brat or someone who's moved a lot and uh, needed to, to make connections, um, the outsider stance in writing or the beginner's stance or the, uh, the stance of a learner or a questioner um, is it puts you on high alert. It, it makes your senses um, um, come alive. Um, and I, I think that that could have something to do with, with the way that I was kind of trained to be an observer, to learn uh, how to uh, either fit in or to make a home. Um, and, um, that could be part of it. Um, and again, in New York, as, as a newcomer, the same applied. Uh, I was learning each day as I, as I went. And I talked to my students a lot about this, about, um, especially the essayists. I also teach poetry and occasionally fiction, but, um, the essay, uh, at true essay, is a, is about um, the attempt of the the arguing with self, <laughs> the discovery as you're going along, uh, examining an idea, something being fully present on the page as well as uh, in your memory uh, for whatever might happen, and um, so I think that um, that that most a lot of good writing begins with. Um, absolute attention. Um, uh, Simone Weil, uh, you know, the, the uh, French uh, mystic and philosopher, uh, said that, uh, abs- wrote that um, absolute unmixed attention is prayer. Um, so I think there's a form of, of attention um, that uh, is important, is essential uh, to the writing, um, to the writer. So in that particular situation where you saw this story unfold in front of your eyes and it, and it had had an impact on you, are you one of those writers who carries a notebook around? Do you jot something down right away or do you file this away in your brain for later? In other words, how long after you saw this did you sit down and write about it? Yes, I just um, – actually someone uh, – another uh, interviewer was asking me about this. Um, and I, so just last night I got out a bunch of my journals from New York and took a picture of them for her so she could see, but yes, I've always, um, I wouldn't call them, I don't really call them journals. I call them writer's notebooks. Um, but I, I do, um, record things, the details as soon as I can. Um, sometimes I will, um, just, you know, carry something in my pocket. Like if I'm taking a walk in the park and jot down, just a word, an image, something like that, um, so that I could will remember the smell, the you know the the taste of the moment. Uh, try to record that. Um, but some of the surprising of the writing, the surprises occur during the writing itself. For instance, that word when I was writing about the boy's mouth being open, and I wrote his mouth is a gate. But then as I looked at the word, as I was writing, I go, oh, my God, it's spelled the same way as agape, which led me to love. So the um, the act of being attentive to what the writing wants to be when it grows up, paying attention to what how the words are leading you to the truth of of what you're writing is another form of attention. Um, so, so do you have sense. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting. So, do, do you have a uh, a sense when you observe something in your writing and in your your uh, carrying journal, walking journal, whatever it is that you carry around with you, that you're going to end up writing about it, or are you just recording events in the world and then later you might sit down, thumb through this, and like you said, you you, you made a connection there between the mouth being agape and the word agape, and mm-hmm. then it, it, it led you to then write something like you just, just wrote here. Right. And this is a very, very brief piece. Um, right. There are two or three flash pieces in it that were actually uh, cut apart from much longer essays and scattered throughout the book that uh, when I was trying to make it read as a whole, 
I um, did a lot of uh, violent <laughs> revisions uh, to shape this book. Um, and in fact, this particular uh, piece uh, was originally published as a poem. And I dismantled the line breaks and rewrote it as an essay um, to, um, to fit so that the book would have a shape uh, larger than just the independent pieces. Um, so let's talk just a second about uh, memoir, because this is uh, a memoir and essays. It, uh, it is a, a collection that uh, is personal in nature. You're observing the world around you, but you're, you and uh, Donald are front and center in a lot of this. And uh, I, I guess I'm thinking, you know, memoir exposes people, uh, exposes, you know, their lives to the world. Um, can you talk about the difference in, and, and let me just drop back here because I, I'm thinking about the chapter that you wrote on your cancer diagnosis. Um, mm -hmm. And you wrote an essay about that, which is very real, very personal. You were very, you shared a lot about what you went through. Um, by the way, how you doing? With that. Oh, great. Fine. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so, but you go through that and I'm just, I'm curious about uh, the difference uh, in writing for one's own sake, that is writing through that experience for one's own sake and writing for publication and how you felt about sharing that chapter of your life as part of this uh, memoir and essays. Well, first of all, a lot of it was not shared. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I, uh, I always talk to my students about the difference in me more and memoir. And uh, for, for me, even though um, I, I always feel like a memoir is uh, not so much about the person. Uh, in other words, the, um, the camera lens is, is not on the person, the, the, the life that you're writing about. It is the lens through which you are uh, participating um, so that you're looking out, um, you know, memoir is whenever I hear someone say I'm writing my memoirs and you know, it's a plural, <laughs> I get a little er, yikes because, uh, again, uh, there's a wonderful book, uh, William Zinser, um, right. I'm, I, I can't think of the name of the book, but, but, uh, he has some wonderful quotes about memoir and, uh, and the difference in memoir and autobiography. In other words, just writing the autobiography, if you were just to write everything that happened to you, you know, like a drunk at the bar that wants to grab you by the uh, arm um, and tell you everything and or people who recount everything that happened and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Isn't it interesting? Well, of course not. It's like the congressional record. Right. So to me, memoir, uh, as Zenzer says, he says, quote, memoir assumes the life. And uh, let me see. Let me think of this. Oh, memoir assumes the life and ignores most of it. So to me, it's it's like um, it, there's a keyhole through which for, for any particular uh, piece that you're writing, all essays are not memoir, of course. Uh, these are memoir-based essays for the most part. Um, and um, but I it. It's highly focused. I, I think about um, the the memoir is uh, again assuming the life. There is some revelation that occurs sometimes. Um, the essay that waited the longest and that I decided finally to put in is is about the uh, affairs, uh, a marital affairs. And that's perhaps the most intimate one. However, <laughs> I waited 10 years, 15 years to write about it. And then I waited 20 years to publish it. Uh, and so there are, there are certain things that must pass the, the um, test of time and of uh, morality. Uh, and whenever I write anything that's exposing any part either of my life or of the life of others that I'm, that I'm writing about, I have to interrogate my motives and my reasons for including that very, very carefully. Um, and not only do they, it doesn't need to be factual and true, but it needs to be earned and be an essential part of the text itself. Um, 
And, you know, Annie Dillard talks about that so well. And the, that the writing, that any advice to memoir writers is the same advice you'd give to any other writer, fiction, anything. And that is, you know, that your, your allegiance is always is, is to the text. So what she's saying, the only question you, you're, you're going for, the, the standard is um, that memoir, like anything else, you're trying to fashion a text. So um, that particular cancer essay went through, I, I think I still have some of my rough drafts. I think it went through 11 drafts. Um, and, um, and a lot of things were cut out. Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of colons that yeah, were cut well, out of that. Yeah. And you, you used a lot of humor, in too. You said but, when you first told your father, you used you talked about how you were going to have a semicolon consistent with yes. your writing life. Yeah, oh, I have and, a semicolon indeed. And, and you said, uh, I love this little scene where the internist stops by, asks you uh, what you're up to, you need to start moving, Ask you, have you passed gas yet? And then you said, I knew that was my ticket out. If I did not pass gas, I could not collect $200. I could not be released. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and then there are the pain guys. The pain guys, this is one of my favorite parts of this I, essay. You know, you're, de you're dealing with this uh, very difficult uh, illness, the, uh, what you're going to be going through with this surgery, but you're, you're adding a side of it that makes it uh, very, I don't know, uh, you can connect with the person because you know, you're still injecting human. The pain guys, it's almost like three guys come back and all they want to do is infuse you with pain and they start talking in your presence like you're not even there. And they start saying, you know, this woman presenting with, and then you start, re uh, you say one of them turned and spoke to the others, Caucasian woman, age 52, presenting with, and that causes your mind to go, presenting with, where were my tap shoes, my top hat and cane? And now folks from behind the curtain, here she is now presenting. <laughs> <laughs> and then I so, describe in great detail what I look like. <laughs> yeah, but but talk about talk about humor and how that uh, helps provide some balance to some of the more serious aspects of what you do in these essays. Well, you know, it's never intentional. I don't try to put humor in. Um, it's it's just part of of the whole rich experience. Uh, you know, when I was teaching um, poetry in the schools here in Charlotte for fifteen years. The children wrote such wonderful, wonderful things. And I, there is a, I think his fourth grade or fifth grade, I'd have to look it up, but he was writing, a, we were writing about the tools, you know, what does it take to be a poet? Oh, and some of them were very funny, you know, what they need. But, but what he said very simply is he said, well, first of all, a poet needs some paper and a pencil. But most of all, a poet needs a sense of human. Human. <laughs> a sense of human. And human. I, I don't know if that was an accident on his part, but it's so true. And and I think that, uh, well, you know what negative capability is uh, uh, from John Keats, this idea that basically the ability to hold uh, opposing notions in one's head. But, right. but I do believe that in any, especially a charged emotional moment, um, and there were many of them during the hospital days. Um, there is never one single emotion in any moment, uh, even like the subway people. I was feeling, you know, fear and sadness for them. But also, I just wanted to get down and bow to them for what they had, the beauty of, of what their lives were. Um, so there was uh, so many mixed and then shame that you know, we have to have these ladders of society. And, and so there was lots of mixed things. And, and I think the richest kind of writing always comes from this mix of emotions. So, um, you know, it, in that, there were lots of crazy and funny things that, that, that happened. Um, I think if you just keep your, your mind open and your heart, you'll start to see that um, in, in the writing should embrace all, all of those those um, contradictions. You know, Walt Whitman, right? Therefore, I you know I contain multitudes. So, so um, the pain so, guys are pretty damn funny. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Rebecca, you're a poet and you're a prose writer. Um, do you have a favorite style? Um, can you talk about the similarities and the differences and what you enjoy about it? I guess in the last fifteen years or so, I've or maybe twenty, I've become a uh, a lot more um, connected 
to the literary nonfiction world, um, not just the essay, um, but narrative nonfiction. Um, the Tribal Knot was a long, long um, book uh, that has a, it's kind of shaped like a novel. I think at heart I am in many ways a narrative um, poet as well as a, a narrative nonfiction writer. Um, you know, I love stories as most people do. Um, now I do have some pure lyrics and experimental verse, and I've done a lot of hybrid forms um, as well. But um, but the stories shaping um, real life stories with real life people, uh, remaining true to this actual world. Um, though you know, I love fiction, and um, I, I read a lot of it, and I did publish a lot of it before I I discovered you know the. Uh, I call it the not creative nonfiction. I, I have a problem with the word creative. <laughs> I talk about that in one of my books, but uh, we don't call it creative fiction or creative poetry, but they slap on creative nonfiction uh, as if it's there's other kinds. But uh, anyway, um, I call it literary nonfiction or uh, the literature of fact. Um, very, very drawn to that. I, I'm just so drawn to the to real world people and real world actions that, um, and trying to see the shape, um, Henry James called that the figure in the carpet, you know, looking for the underlying uh, shape and, and sound of, of real life events that I think that what's happened over the last couple decades anyway, I'm quite old, you know, uh, is, um, is that a lot of the impulses for my poetry and also my fiction have kind of come together in the narrative nonfiction. Um, and um, so I don't have a particular style. So, um, I, sometimes I write really brief ones. If anyone who, who sees this book will see that there's three or four very, very brief pieces in there. Um, one's half a page long. Um, and then there are braided essays and there are segmented essays with subtitles um, so, you know, everything is subservient to, um, to the text itself. It, the text tells you what it wants to be if, uh, you know, <laughs> and, uh, if we, if we remain, uh, flexible and, and capable of revision and, uh, reseeing, um, it will take us, take us where it needs to go, I think. Okay, before our last read here, just a couple. I'm going to do a couple of uh, fill-in-the-blanks, a couple of true-false just real quick. You can uh, tell me what comes into your mind uh, when you hear these uh, questions. Uh, the vices and activities that interfere with my writing include? I don't get too interfered with my writing when I finally get there. I, I think it would be self, um, you know, worrying about th that this isn't good enough mm -hmm. or um, uh, just – I can't do this. It, it would be um, some sort of um, self-censorship, I think. Mm. Uh, it would be, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, all those things we all feel. Sure. What, if, what if this is terrible? What if they reject it? What if they, you know, they hate it? What if it, you know, this book gets out and, and people criticize it? What, you know, it's those sorts of things. It's never, you know, uh, about the what I'm actually writing. <laughs> it's about my, in, you know, uh, you know, I, I um, studied with Audre Lorde, who was a very amazing, amazing writer. And a lot of people are uh, wearing t-shirts now in, in protests um, that, that have her words on it. Like your silence will not protect you. I studied with Audre. And one of the things that, that she has in one of her poems is it is hard to fight an enemy who has outposts in your head. And and I think that the, those would be uh, the kinds of, of problems I run into. So some writers say the vices and activities are things like Netflix or playing with their kids or the dog coming in. But you're you're actually getting into the things that might interfere with the writer's psyche sometimes, mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting. So here's here's a question that's follow up to that. If I could tell my younger writing self something very helpful that I've learned based upon my many years of writing, it would be. Have more fun with it. Um, don't worry so much about what what's going to become of it. <laughs> um, 
you know, trust, um, trust the process. So true, false routine is an important part of my writing process. True. Uh, and how often are you at that routine every day? Oh gosh. It, well, it depends. Um, but I'm usually about two hours, three in the morning. It depends on what else is going on. But that's about right. And then, but when I'm working on editing a book or revising or some, sometimes it's, you know, eight, 10 hours if I can get away. But I, I teach um, for many years. My husband and I were also helping uh, care for my parents. Um, so, uh, you know, life interrupts the writing. Um, and um, so it's not always happening. But, but that's basically been my, if you just looked over the, you know, almost 40 years I've been writing. Uh, that's pretty much what I believe in. Um, I think you got to get to the desk often enough that you really miss it. <laughs> now, now here's, a, here's a true false. Now, you, you, given all your body of work, it may not have happened to you much, but true or false, rejection does not bother me. Funny you should ask it. No, rejection uh, <laughs> doesn't bother me because I don't use the word anymore. Oh, you don't? Uh, no, I, I, um, I call it... Um, free to send out again. <laughs> I No, that's true. I actually have an, uh, an essay. I, I should put it on my uh, website so people can read it. Um, but it's it, I, years ago, I discovered that if that folder that says rejection, uh, if I changed it, um, and I did, I just walked, I rejected rejection, marked it out, and put free to send out again. So I try to to think of it like, oh, thank God you're home. Uh, you you came back to me. Um, I missed you so. Let me uh, send it to someone uh, with better judgment. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Okay. Well, that's that's a good segue into the last uh, read here. We've got one final read from the book. Uh, it's uh, the title of the essay. Uh, it's actually the last essay in the book. It's uh, called Ginkgo Song. Uh, can you? Just very briefly, uh, you're going to read uh, just a short piece of this. Um, tell us uh, why this is last and why it's important to you. Right. Well, I'm not going to read the whole essay, even though it's only two pages. Uh, it, the, I'm going to not do the backstory, which is another subway thing, which, sure. which I love, actually. I'm just going to do the park part of it, park scene. Uh, again, the book opens in the park and it closes in the park, Central Park. Um, and also, there's a lot of uh, backstories, some about family, um, grandparents. Um, they make very cameo roles. Uh, mostly, it's a very much New York Street, New York apartment um, uh, book or jury or subway, but it's New York. But but a lot of it is also backstory. And so I I ended it with with some of, of that, going back to childhood, but also be, for the music again. Ginkgo song. Above the tunnel and across the park in this city that never sleeps, everyone, it seems, does. Sometimes in late morning, I walk to my favorite bench in Sheep Meadow and wait for the sleepers to wake. Now, scanning the green lawn before me, I see a man and woman stretched out together, face down, shoeless, the New York Times carefully arranged like a pallet beneath them. One of the woman's pale hands rests lightly atop the man's t-shirted back, a tender, domestic gesture, one I often commit on Donald while he is asleep. Near the couple, Near enough to be an adjoining bedroom, if the sky were ceiling and these trees were walls, the muscled torso of a man curls around a ginkgo trunk, as if he were growing out of it. Two orange crutches and a guitar are carefully placed beside him, and beside the guitar, two artificial legs tapering to stumps below the knee joints. The way we take off our shoes to sleep he has taken off these legs. Suddenly, I am very sleepy, the best kind of sleepy. I want to curl up like the legless man before me, surrounded by bird squawk and squirrel chatter, the way I used to curl up in the middle of the grown-ups' talk, my uncle shuffling the cards, my aunt stalled in the middle of a story with no point except its telling. 
my mother's conspiratorial laughter, pretending sleep, willing my arm to flop dramatically onto the sofa so that they would let me stay right there, part of the scene, but even more so, lone sleeper in the midst of all that song. I would like to fall asleep right now on this bench, waking to the snap of the plastic legs socketing the man back together and, in a few minutes, the strum of his guitar. Yeah, that's wonderful, Rebecca. And I, I'm thinking about how we started the the show and the first essay with all the clatter and the artillery and people not taking cookies from you to this just sort of wonderful scene in the park where along the way you met many people who are more than happy to talk with you and have conversation oh, yes. <laughs> about all kinds of things. Uh, so it, it's great. Uh, listeners, you can, uh, you can pick the book up now. It's, uh, it's available and uh, you'll be able to see more about it in the show notes. Uh, uh, you'll see some uh, images as well. And Rebecca, thanks so much for being a uh, part of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.